The Courage to Lead, episode 126. You're listening to the IB4E Coaching Podcast. Brought to you by IB4E Coaching, business coaching for executives, entrepreneurs, and small business professionals. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com. Hey, Coach Harlan here. Welcome back to the podcast. Hope you guys are having a great week. Um, I'm having a great week and I'm excited to introduce you to my guest today. Please help me welcome John Kasman. John Kasman is a real estate entrepreneur who has partnered with busy professionals to invest in over $100 million worth of apartments. John also consults active multifamily investors to help them start or grow their business. He hosts the Multifamily Insights podcast, formerly Target Market Insights, and is a co-creator of the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. Prior to becoming a full-time investor, John worked in corporate America, overseeing marketing campaigns for General Motors, Nike, and Coors Light. John, welcome to the show. Harlan, thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to be here and can't wait to share a little bit more with all of your listeners. Absolutely. No, I, this is something I'm interested in. I, I sold real estate before. I had a couple rental properties, but I've never dove into multifamily. So I'm, I'm interested to learn kind of the, the ins and outs of that and, and what you've done and how you've been able to help these people. 100 million worth of apartments. That's great. Good job. Yeah. I mean, it sounds uh, crazy. Just listening to you say it uh, sounded a little shocking to me. If you would have gone back five years, I probably would have laughed at you, but uh, we're excited about where we've been, but more importantly, where we're headed. Excellent. All right. Well, we're going to get into all of that. Um, see where, what all you're doing now, and then where you're headed in the future. But before we get started, I've got 10 questions. These are questions that the listeners know. Um, I ask every one of my guests, questions made famous on the television show Inside the Actor's Studio, where host James Lipton asks these questions of his Hollywood uh, guests from TV, stage, and film. And if those questions are good enough for the Hollywood elite, they're certainly good enough for my guests. So John, if you're ready, 10 questions for you. Question number one, what is your favorite word? Abundance. Nice. What is your least favorite word? Can't. What turned you on? Wow, you are really getting close. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, my wife, uh, outside of that, I would say, possibilities very good and what turns you off negativity what sound or noise do you love uh i love the sound of my boys enjoying themselves and laughing nice what sound or noise do you hate I really hate the sound that people make when you take a fork or a knife and you like scratch it across a plate, you know, that that's a really irritating sound. Yes. My wife would agree with you. <laughs> Are you the culprit there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I didn't want to go into it, but yes, I am. it's all me. All right. Question seven. What is your favorite curse word? Man, I try not to curse, but when I do, uh, the S word comes out pretty frequently. So we'll work on that. Okay. Um, question eight, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, if you would have asked me as a child or a young man, I really thought I was going to be a professional wrestler. Um, I did not grow into the body necessary to be a professional wrestler, but I really thought that's what I was going to be. Nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, what profession would you not like to do? Uh, There's so many. I mean, geez, <laughs> you know, um, one I, I I don't think I would ever like to do is. Uh, well, that's not fair to say. I wouldn't want to be a politician. No. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's one that I just would have no desire to do. Absolutely. All right. Finally, question 10, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Just made the cutoff. <laughs> Good job. Glad you could make it. Glad you could make it. Yeah. 
All right, John, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about how you got your start um, in investing, what you see, how you help the people you're working with right now. And at some point, we're going to transition into courage and leadership. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Listeners, we'll be back right after this. So stick with us. Imagine having a trusted group of CEOs at your disposal. Imagine having your very own peer advisory team who could work you through the problems and questions in your business before you had to make those difficult decisions. Imagine you had a group of advisors that had your back and met for the sole purpose of making you successful in your business. What would you be able to accomplish then? Well, you don't have to imagine anymore. You can have that and more when you join my Business Success Mastermind Group. Join my Business Success Mastermind Group today. Learn more at ib4e-coaching.com forward slash mastermind. And I'm back with my guest, John Kasman. John, thanks again for, for being on the podcast. So you started off, you said in marketing. Is that where you started? Yeah, absolutely. So came up in corporate America doing marketing and advertising. Uh, started at uh, really is an advertising agency doing an internship that turned into a fellowship program. And through that fellowship program, GM was one of my clients. Uh, one of my old clients got promoted and he was looking to hire someone for his old position. My name came up and uh, they asked me to come interview and apply for the role. I ended up getting it and worked for GM for about four and a half years. Excellent. Very cool. And then, I mean, is that you went to school for marketing or did you just yes. kind of find your way in there? Okay. Yeah. Nice. Very cool. And then uh, who else? You work for Nike, you work for Coors Light. Were those some of the other clients with that? Yeah, absolutely. So I went from being on the client side of the business, working at GM. And what ended up happening for me was I moved to Chicago and went on an agency side. So I worked for an advertising agency and some of my clients were Coors Light and Nike, Mountain Dew, some of these other brands. Nice. Very cool. And then at some point you made a transition. How did That's that right. About? Well, let's go back to my time at GM. You know, uh, if you go back to 2007, 2008, 2009, we were hit with kind of that economic recession. But for me, my company was really at the, the forefront of what was happening across the country. So I was seeing my leadership team on the news. I'm talking CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. I'm watching the people that I share the floor with uh, going on there and talking about the state of the business. And the level of anxiety was beyond through the roof. And for me, I was early in my career. I was a junior executive. So I had a lot of room to grow and I wasn't so concerned with my job, but I watched what the impact had on all of my colleagues. Uh, we had multiple rounds of layoffs. I watched you know, people next to me lose their job. And then ultimately, of course, we went through a structured bankruptcy. So during that time, I really fought back to Rich Dad, Poor Dad, a book that I read uh, while I was in college. And it just made all those principles uh, become really important to me. And the sense of urgency grew to find another means of making money besides just a W-2 job. Fast forward, I was still in Detroit, but couldn't figure out, you know, investing in that market. So I wanted to move to Chicago, moved to Chicago, uh, started working at an advertising agency and ended up doing my first investment. So I was investing on the side while building up, you know, my, my own portfolio and working the W-2 job. The agency I was at, we did great, won a lot of awards, grew and expanded probably five times the size the agency was when I started. And we got really big and we did a big merger and all this stuff. And that company ended up going bankrupt as well. Wow. And that was really the time where I said, wow, uh, here we are again, not knowing what's going to happen. Now I'm not the junior executive at this big company who's untouchable. Now, you know, I'm a, you know, director level and, you know, I got a decent salary. So as they're looking to make cuts, you know, my name may come up. I felt pretty confident and I never missed a paycheck. I was good from that standpoint. But when you're at a smaller agency and you're making a bigger salary, you know, there's some tougher conversations to be had. And I think for me, it was at that moment I said, you know what, we can't just keep going through this. Like, I don't want to do this for the next 20 years. Um, we're going to have to find another way to build. I was already investing in real estate. And around that time is when I really got serious about growing and investing with other people. Wow. Yeah, I, I worked at Lockheed Aircraft and uh, the aircraft industry, you know, you had your highs and your lows. 
you were working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week, and then they were layoffs, and you're working 60, 70 hours a week in layoffs. After a while, you start thinking, you know, I need to take better control of this stuff. Man. Yeah, that's exactly it, man. And it's tough. I mean, and, you know, it was one thing when we were, you know, when I was, you know, at the, in the automotive industry. And, and to be fair, I saw that as an automotive thing, you know, until the financial crisis really kicked in and you saw what was happening with, you know, the lending industry and people losing their homes, like leading up to that, it was just the automotive industry, you know, for the first, you know, three to six months, it was the CEOs going down to Washington, DC and putting that on the news and all that stuff. So, you know, the, the lending side of it, that came towards the, you know, the back half of it. Um, So it just, it, it, it weighed on us. It weighed on not just me, but all of my colleagues. And for me, I really felt that it wasn't the way I wanted to spend my my corporate career. Um, I enjoyed what I was doing. I loved my job in marketing, but the anxiety around whether or not I'm going to be here, or quite frankly, you get to the point where you're just no longer someone's guy, you know, the politics that were involved, you know, I mean, you're talking about big corporations. So you know, people are choosing their successors. And if you weren't in with this person and they got the job, you could very easily be shipped somewhere else. And I mean, it just, it was a lot of games and it just was too much for me. Yeah. But you had been investing on the side. Did you say, Hey, I, I think I can do this. I like this. I did. You know, and what ended up happening for me is, you know, uh, I was starting to build my portfolio. So we had invested in about, you know, 13 units, but around one and a half million dollars worth of a part or a multifamily. So when the second company went into bankruptcy, I looked at what we had in our assets and I didn't have the cash flow to sustain myself. And that was one of the main reasons I started to invest was to insulate myself from this happening. So that made me step back and say, well, what's wrong with our, our strategy? And part of what I realized is that we weren't able to scale because my wife and I were saving all of our money buying a property. And the folks that I knew who were actually scaling, they got to the point where they didn't have to rely on how much money they had in their own bank account to invest in real estate. Hmm. And I had heard people talk about investing and working with other people's money, but it just didn't feel right to me. You know, I just felt like, hey, you know what, I'm going to save my money and invest with what we have. But I think that just opened my mind up. I remember in particular, I met a, a young lady who I met her, you know, a couple of years earlier and she had nine units when I met her. And I remember that she grew her portfolio from nine units to 90 units in probably 12 to 18 months. Wow. And it was just remarkable. And she was a friend. We got to know each other and I invited her to breakfast and I just asked her flat out, how'd you do it? And she told me she worked with other people. She had a group of investors who had reached out. They had the capital, and if she could find the deal and would manage the deal, they would partner up on it. And I hadn't really thought about partnering until that conversation. And it's really interesting because once you warm up to an idea, it's incredible how things are now set in motion. I think a month later, um, I ended up having a meeting with this guy who was coaching people on how to invest and working with other people. Uh, in our place, we, we call it syndication, but it's basically just group investing. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of, you know, you and nine of your friends taking $100,000 that you've saved up to invest in, in a deal, all 10 of you come together. You take your $100,000 each. Now you've got a million dollars. And with that million dollars, you can go buy a $4 million property. You can hire a professional management company. There's a lot of, you know, benefits you get from having a scale of a bigger property sure. than you buying a $400,000 property that you have to self-manage and, or hire a property manager and oversee everything. And for busy professionals, it's a great way to invest mm-hmm. in a scale. So it really opened up the options and I hadn't thought of it until that moment. But again, meeting these people who were doing it and people that I knew and had a relationship with, that made it feasible for me. And my goal actually wasn't to do these huge deals at that time. I just wanted to not have to save six figures to go buy a property. You know, if I could partner with someone, that would make it a little bit easier. But lo and behold, what ended up happening is uh, the next deal we ended up doing was 192 units with a group out of Texas. And we brought some investors, we helped them with some marketing, and it allowed us to really scale and continue to build our property, uh, our portfolio, as well as our relationships with our investors. Wow. That is awesome. Yeah. OPM, other people's money. 
You hear that a lot tossed around. When you invest in a property like that, you're then having to split any profits, right? Or revenue that's coming in off the, the lease of those, those buildings and stuff. Does that cut into your, wouldn't it be better to have your own money going in and buying these properties? It depends, right? I mean, certainly from a profit standpoint, you know, if you want to have a hundred percent, absolutely. But think about it a couple of different ways, right? And I think it comes down to the person and the pain point that you're facing. My pain point was if I didn't have the capital then I couldn't go by. And what happened with our portfolio is we bought a two unit building. We saved up the next property we bought was an eight unit or three unit building. Uh, we actually refinanced or took out a loan a line of credit on the first property to buy an eight unit building. Uh, but we were saving up all of our money to buy. So our problem was if we didn't have the cash saved in our bank account, we couldn't buy. So if you think about it from that standpoint, yes, you know, you'd let, rather have a hundred percent ownership but on the same note, the difference between buying a, a three-unit building where you own 100% of it and a 200-unit building where maybe you own 10% of it, right? The numbers can equate in a similar manner as far as what your profits are, or you could exceed it. But the fact that now it's professional, you know, you've got investors, you have on-site property managers, you have a team around you that's looking at the property. It doesn't take the same amount of effort and energy that you know owning that three unit does. I mean, there's still a lot of other things involved with coordination and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's for me, it eliminated the need to have six figures or you know or more sitting in my bank account at any given time to invest in real estate. Now I've got a relationship and network with people, and that removes those obstacles. So if I find a great deal tomorrow, I have the network to go out there and buy it. So when you think about that abundant mindset, now I'm not limited by what I have in my bank account. And that was a big transition for me sure. because I went from, well, I only have X amount of dollars. I'm not even going to bother looking at real estate because I don't have the money to go buy it to now I can look at real estate deals all day long, knowing that I have a network of investors who are ready to help me and work, partner with me to go take down a deal. Nice. Yeah. Like I said, I had a couple of rental properties, uh, but they were single family homes. So automatically, if it's not occupied, you're losing money, right? The phone calls all came into me because I wasn't making enough to afford to have a management company take care of it and everything like that. This sounds like a, a nice option. So like you said, you have the multi-family, so you have income coming in, and yet you're not the one over there, you know, putting in plumbing and fixing out electrical or anything like that. Yeah. It, that's exactly it, right? It's the benefits of being a real estate investor without the headaches of being a landlord or a flipper, right? Because that's it. I mean, most people, when you think about investing in real estate, you're thinking about, you know, being a landlord, you got a rental property sure. and everything that's involved with being a landlord, or you're taking that HGTV approach. You're going to buy something, you're going to, you know, fix the kitchen up or flip <laughs> the bathroom, right? And, and oversee these contractors, you're going to flip it for this great profit. The reality is most of us don't have the time or energy or the experience to do any of that the right way, you know, and very few people are that passionate about this, right? Maybe you love design, but other than that, who's passionate about being a landlord? I don't know anybody who's passionate about that. So what we really want, we want the perks. So when you go and scale, you're able to get those perks without the headaches of being a landlord or a flipper. And that really allows this business to thrive because now we're buying, you know, institutional level properties. We're buying, you know, hundred plus units usually is what we're looking at or 50 plus units sometimes. So we're looking at these larger properties. We are putting professional management in place. And as the investor, you get all the perks. You literally get the tax benefits. You're an owner in it. You get all those perks, but you don't have to worry about that because our team works with property managers. We work with the contractors. We manage all of those different logistics. So it's a much easier way to invest. And quite frankly, I wish I would have started that way because when I was doing this, I was building this on the side. I had a full-time job. My wife had a full-time job. We started having our two kids. So I was being pulled in a lot of different directions. I was trying to flip some properties to make some quick money. I was trying to manage my rental portfolio. I was trying to talk to investors. It was just a lot. And I would have had more success if I would have partnered with another group who was already in the space, allowed me to kind of gain some experience, get more and more comfortable, and then transition into being an operator, if that is what I truly intended to do. Wow. That is awesome. So everything from duplexes, triplexes to big apartment complexes, right? That's right. Big type things. And then 
so I've heard of other people who go in and buy an apartment complex, say eight or 10 units and almost flip. They'll go in and do some minor improvements so they can increase the rates. If somebody moves, they, you know, fix up that apartment so they can get a higher uh, rate in there and everything like that. Do you do any of that or is that left up to the management company to decide or how are those decisions made? Yeah, we always go into a property with a business plan. So I talked about, you know, again, the professionalism of investing in these larger properties. The first thing we've got to do is understand where we can create value because we work with our investors. And while many of them like us, they're really investing to, you know, get a return on their capital and they like the benefits that real estate has to provide. So we've got to have a business plan going into any opportunity. And usually, yes, increasing the revenue, maybe through rent increases, maybe it's through adding other amenities. That's going to be a part of our business plan. So we're going to look at the property, see how it's performing today, see where we think there's opportunities to improve that performance, and then we're going to implement that business plan. So we do work with property managers, and we certainly take their advice, but we drive the ship. You know, it's on us as the owners, as the asset managers, to drive the ship of what we want to see, and our property managers help us execute that. Nice. Very cool. And then you put together the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. Is that to teach people how to do what you do or just connect people? It's more of a connection. So it's not limited to multifamily. Uh, my partner, as a matter of fact, the woman I was telling you about who went from nine units to 90 units, we became good friends and we actually worked together to launch the Midwest Real Estate Networking Summit. And what the event is, is you know we would travel around the country to different events and we felt there wasn't anything in the Midwest. So I would go out to California and there'd be some great networking events for real estate. You could go out to the East Coast, you could go down South. But in Chicago, all we got were, you know, essentially the, the gurus who uh, would charge you and basically are looking to sell you some very expensive program. And there's, you know, I'm not knocking the, the program, but I'm saying that when you went to these events, you didn't leave with any kind of knowledge that positioned you to be a successful real estate investor. You didn't leave with the relationships necessary to help you scale your business. And because of the way my portfolio grew and the way my partner's portfolio grew, we knew how important it was to network. So this event was really centered on networking, providing education, but also connecting you with the people to, to take your business forward. So again, if you're a if you're a busy professional and you're looking to invest, maybe what I described earlier is a great fit for you. Well, coming to an event like this is a way to meet people like me and other folks in the space who will go out, find the apartment buildings, find the investment opportunities, and that you can just partner with them on it. Or maybe you are a wholesaler or a flipper and you like the renovations, but you need some contract relationships or you need help understanding how to structure a deal. Or maybe you want to raise money for, for past, from passive investors to help you do more deals, right? Well, coming to an event like this allows you the chance to connect with like-minded people who are looking to use real estate to grow. The other thing that's really cool is like, there's so many ways to invest. As an investor, you can invest in multiple strategies. Like I have a retirement account. You can actually use a self-directed retirement account to invest in real estate. Now with those, you can't control it. Right. So for me, it's even great for me to take that account and I can loan money. I can be a private lender. So I can loan money to other investors out of that. I can partner or invest in someone else's deal through that account. And then separately, I have my own deals that I can lead and do. So it's just great to network so you can learn about all the different strategies, the tools, and how you can grow your portfolio. And that's what that event is all about. It was meant to be a no-pitch event in the Midwest where you could come out, you could learn, you could connect with people, and you didn't have the pressure of waiting for someone to ask you for a, a ten dollars or $15,000 or $20,000 commitment in the back room. Nice. Very cool. And then Casman Capital, you guys actually help put deals together for people? That's right. So what we do is, I mean, essentially what we described before is we partner with everyday professionals so that they could get the benefits of real estate investing without the pains of being a landlord or being a, being a flipper themselves. So we find deals. We have a different group of folks that we partner with and we find these investment opportunities. And once we vetted an opportunity, we like the deal, we're involved in the deal. We'll then share that opportunity with investors in our network, and then they can decide whether or not they want to be a part of that deal. So it's a great way for someone to, you know, see deals that we've already vetted, look at it for themselves, determine if it's a fit for their investing goals, and invest passively and get the joys of it. Nice. 
Um, so can you tell me about one of the deals you put together recently? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we just did 104 units down in Louisville, Kentucky, and this was a newer property, 2019 build. And we love this deal because we felt the risk was low. Okay. There's always risk in any kind of investment. So I want to be crystal clear. Um, every investment has some level of risk in it, but with this one, it was hundred percent occupied. It's only two years old or, you know, two years old when we bought it. Um, so we felt like the maintenance issues would be minimal, um, had a pretty good performance history since it was hundred percent occupied, but what had happened is, um, COVID hit and rents, you know, stayed flat because the owners wanted to maintain occupancy and keep the folks who were there. They just wanted to keep them paying. Well, in reality, what many people have seen is the rents actually increased everywhere around the country. Mm -hmm. So rent prices were going up, inflation was kicking in, the price for everything was going up, but they kept their rents the same. So there was a gap between where the rents currently were and rents could be. There's some other amenities that they've missed and some other things that they didn't add. And because they were developers, they didn't really care as much about that. They cared about building the building and then we're going to sell it, right? Mm -hmm. And as operators, we're coming in to say, hey, here's some different ways we could increase the revenue. And that's what we try to focus on is where can we create revenue? Where can we increase the, uh, the money? And building a business plan around that. So that was a deal that we got. It's $12.1 million acquisition. We raised uh, about four, four, about four to four and a half million dollars on that deal and took that down last year. So that's one that we're going to own for a couple of years. We'll implement our business plan. And when the time is right, we'll look to sell. And we've got plenty of flexibility on when we sell. We have an 11-year loan locked in in place. So we've got a lot of flexibility, but our, we feel our downsides protected because we're not going to be forced to sell at any point over the next 10 years. And if the market is right and there's a lot of demand, we could sell. If not, we'll have really good cash flow that we can distribute to our investors until then. Nice. And so your business plan, does it have like a, this is the optimal price if, if value of the property goes up to this, we know we can sell and make back, you know, on the investment or do you have a target in mind when you first come in there? We do. So part of our process with, with our business plan, just like anything else in business, right? We're going in, we build out the business plan. We try to start with the exit. So, Hey, uh, how long do we want to hold this property? When will we want to sell? What will we need to sell for in order to deliver a certain return to our investors? Right. Now, when we underwrite, we are basically looking to double an investor's money over the course of a five-year hold. So that's kind of our, our loose benchmark. If you invest $100,000 with us over the course of five years, we sell, we want to give back about $200,000 in total. And that's going to be through cash flow, your initial 100K plus the, the profits on the upside. So when we're looking at deals, we want to see if a deal is going to allow us to do that. Okay. Um, sometimes it may be a little less if we feel like, hey, there's less risk in this deal. Sometimes it might be a little bit more if we feel like, hey, there's a little bit more risk in this deal. But either way, that's kind of a benchmark. So as we're looking at that, that kind of drives our thinking. But if we're in and out of a deal in say two or three years, we may not hit that same benchmark. But we also look at the overall return and the IRR, um, which essentially is the velocity of how quickly you get your money back. So we may look at those different metrics. And we have multiple metrics we look at and we try to make an informed decision based on, again, market conditions, um, where we're at with our business plan and whether or not there are other opportunities that would be more exciting for us to pursue uh, if we were to sell that property. So we try to take all that information in and ultimately understand where our investors are at and what they're looking for and use that to make a decision on whether or not we sell or we hold. Very cool. And you guys have properties all over the country? Not all over the country. We focus on the Midwest and the Southeast region. Okay. Uh, for us, one of the main things we look for is a market's growth. We want to make sure that there's strong demand in the market, not just today, but for the foreseeable future. So what are those market drivers? Are people moving to the area? What employers are there? Uh, and then as we look at the sub-market, we want to know why people would want to live there. What are the schools like? What is the infrastructure, highways, uh, you know, trains, public transportation? We want to know all of those kind of things and use that to decide where are the right places for us to invest. So we try to use that. We like the Midwest and the Southeast region. In the Midwest, we're talking about growth markets like Indianapolis, Columbus, Cincinnati, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, we try to avoid markets where they're not seeing growth 
So think about the Detroit's or maybe Gary, Indiana, some of those kind of markets um, that are struggling. We don't necessarily invest in those markets, but we do like areas where there's strong demand, people are moving to those areas, and there's pretty strong cash flow and rent growth. Yeah, yeah Detroit, last time I was up there, it's sad how, how bad things are up there. Well, and it's getting better. I mean, I, I lived in Detroit for five years, so I, I have nothing but good things to say about Detroit. Um, love the city. I'm from Cleveland. It's very similar uh, dynamic in Cleveland. Love both cities. And from a young person standpoint, there's stuff to do now that wasn't there a decade ago. However, for me, because I've got to look at the macroeconomics as well as the microeconomics, the macroeconomics don't give me comfort just yet to feel that five, 10 years from now, more and more people are still going to be moving into this area. Some of those markets are still seeing a decline. And because I'm working with other people's money, we just have to be a bit more cautious when we're looking at those kind of data points. Absolutely. So tell me about your podcast. Yeah, man, multifamily insights. So uh, the podcast actually started because, well, when I was in Chicago, and I decided to start work with other investors. The next step was, okay, let me go find some deals. I had a hard time finding deals in Chicago that made sense in the markets I liked in Chicago. Um, again, a little different when I got 100% of the pie versus if now I'm giving 60 or 70% of the pie to someone else, it's now got to work for them to want to invest and still be worth my time. So as we started looking at deals, we couldn't find deals that penciled. And what I realized is I was going to have to look in different markets, markets that had better cash flow than the north side of Chicago. And in doing that, I realized I really didn't know at that time how to find the right markets. Um, what I'd done up to that point in Chicago was a lot of trial and error, but I was just plugged in. You know, I was on the ground. I lived in the city. I was talking to people all day long. I was working in marketing and advertising. So I'm around young people. So, I mean, just listening to where people were moving to, where they lived, that was, you know, insights, going to different networking events, where are these realtors at, where are you finding deals, where are you investing? I would get all this information. So I already kind of naturally had a great understanding of which markets I wanted to invest in. Mm -hmm. And that worked out great. I mean, we crushed on our first deal. We did great on our second deal. I knew exactly where I wanted to be on the third deal. Um, and I started to get pushed out further and further and further from the ideal markets I really wanted to be in. So by the time we wanted to work with other people, it became clear Chicago just wasn't going to work. But because of that, I didn't know how to find those markets in other cities. And I ended up saying, you know what? I need to figure this out. And the podcast was a great way for me to do that. So the show initially was called Target Market Insights, mm -hmm. and it was all about finding the best markets and sub-markets for real estate investing. And I would sit down with guests and I would ask them flat out, hey, you own X amount of units in Dallas, Texas. How did you, why Dallas? What made you pick Dallas? Okay, you're in East Dallas. Why East Dallas and not North Dallas, right? So then they would go out and they would say, well, why this? And, you know, well, this is close to, you know, the center state or this is close to this development. So I would do this over and over with different podcast guests. Mm -hmm. And after 20 or 30 episodes, it became really clear that there was absolutely a process to finding the best places to invest. So I launched that show initially to help me figure out how to invest. I also wanted to educate other people in the process. And it also allowed me to demonstrate a level of expertise and a commitment to being great at this. You know, um, it, it, I mean, you think about your friends and your family and really being uh, an, inf I don't want to say an influencer, but being credible with them mm -hmm. when they can see the commitment that I was having by doing this podcast, sharing the episodes, building up my knowledge, because I wanted to make sure I was picking the right places to invest, right? So when they saw that, that gave them a level of comfort of what I was doing and that they could trust me to find those right markets. Nice. Very cool. Very, very cool. So this podcast is about the courage to lead. Um, and we talk about different types of courage. Where do, where do you find the courage to leave the comfort of the nine to five? Unless company goes bankrupt and you decide, okay, <laughs> right. Um, where do you find that courage to overcome some of the, the setbacks, you know, and, and keep moving towards your success? Tell me about you. Um, where did you find the courage to, I mean, you could have easily found another job somewhere in a marketing department, right? Where did you find that courage to say, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go invest. I think there's, um, we get a chance to have, 
these tests uh, come up multiple times in our lives and you get to choose your path, you know, and sometimes you, you have to circle back around and you get a similar choice, but you get to keep picking your path. Right. And I think the, what happened for me the first time around when I was early in my career in Detroit, in the automotive industry, I was looking for another job. Absolutely. Everyone I knew was looking for another job. My boss told me, if you're not looking for another job, you're too stupid to work for me. You know, that's just where the industry was. I mean, we were all like, you know, we felt like we were on the Titanic trying to find, you know, a life preserver jacket. So in going through that process, I remember being dejected because one, I wasn't really excited about the opportunities I was looking at. Um, I wasn't tied to Detroit. I had no family there. I had no reason to be there other than at this great job. So for me to leave, I'm like, well, why am I going to leave this company to go work for another company in Detroit. Like if I'm going to be in Detroit, I don't think you get a better job than GM in advertising. Right. I mean, I was going to the Super Bowl and stuff like that. Like you can't go from being the marketing guy going to the Super Bowl and these cool GQ parties and all that kind of stuff to what working on jelly, like what? (laughs) So, um, so I think the first thing for me was just really stepping back and getting clear on what I wanted out of it. Um, I recall distinctly, we had a day where a lot of people got let go and we knew it was coming. Um, I was told I was safe, quote unquote, but nonetheless, you know, things changed. And the day of, I get to the office late. I made it, I made it a point to come as late as possible because I didn't want to be there to see, you know, those awkward hallway situations. And um, I got there. I sat at my desk and I had a red light, a red message on uh, my phone. And I was like, wow, these dudes, they told me I was good. And here I am with this. I know what this voicemail is. I said, wait a minute, dude, you are, you're adding so much to this. Just listen to the voicemail. I listened to the voicemail and as a colleague guy sat right in front of me, he left a message to the entire floor. He was let go after working for the firm for 22 years. And he's what we call a lifer. His plan was work there until I retire. And he was distraught. He was caught off guard. He didn't have a plan B. And I remember feeling very empathetic for him and what he was going through. But I also realized, man, this the business is just, you know, it's just cutthroat. Um, even when people care, it's just, you know, numbers are numbers and companies, this is what happens. Um, and I couldn't rely on that. So that was the first time I said, you've got to figure out another path. Now, I said that to myself then, but I didn't take action to, you know, do anything for about two and a half years until I decided to move to Chicago. And I remember that was one where I um, I found the courage to leave that cushy corporate job to go to the agency world because I remember reading in um, Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And most people talk about that book and how it imp- impacted them because of the way he talks about money. And that was key and important in real estate and all that stuff. Something else actually stood out more to me in that book. And he talked about, you should work a job for experiences, not for salary and titles. And I looked at where I was. Here I was, advertising manager at General Motors, working on amazing things. And I mean, again, people treated me like royalty because I had a great, you know, I could influence their business, right? I was very valuable to them. But it wasn't for me. You know what I'm saying? Like it was it was for the advertising manager at GM, not for John Casman. And as an intern, I had someone explain that to me, that you will get a lot of perks through this job. But remember, you want to get the perks because it's you, not because you happen to be sitting in a particular seat at a given moment in time. And that just always stuck with me. And I felt like, I was trying to get out of that situation. I had built up my resume at this point. I had been in the New York Times. I had been in Black Enterprise Magazine. as one of the top advertising executives in the country. I was networking with more and more people. Um, I was working on Buick. It was the fastest growing brand in America. I had a lot of wins under my belt at this point, right, as a young executive. And it just felt like the right time to make the switch. My father flipped out on me. My father worked at, I mean, just to give you a story, he worked at um, a Buick dealership. So as a kid, I would go to the Buick dealership. He washed his car every Saturday. So I would go up to, up to the dealership with him every Saturday. He'd wash his car. And 
he worked in the parts and service department. And here I was working at corporate at headquarters, uh, working advertising and marketing at, at headquarters, right? I mean, you just think about that coming full circle. And here I am sitting with him at the auto show and I tell him I'm going to quit. <laughs> and he was like, what? Uh, I mean, he's a car dude. He loved cars. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to leave. And I explained to him why he thought it was a huge mistake. But for me, it had gotten to the point where I knew if I didn't leave soon, I would never leave. Well, those and perks, I, they use those perks to kind of keep you, right? The little absolutely. To hold absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I think too, like you get to a point where it's hard to leave. And I thought about all of the people who were upset and had the anxiety the whole time we were going through bankruptcy. None of those people left. Yeah. None of them. Miserable for years. None of them left. Why? Like you said, the perks, but then there's also that self-doubt at a certain point. You get to oh, a certain yeah. level in your career, you doubt whether or not you can go out there and do this somewhere else and whether or not you have that ability. And I was getting to that cusp where if I didn't leave, then I probably would never leave. And um, I just, I sat down, I did some deep soul searching and I talked to my uh, girl, fiance at the time, wife now, and we just talked about the life we wanted to build. And we talked about where we wanted to live. And we realized that we didn't want to live in Detroit. Nothing wrong with the city. We just didn't have any ties to the city and no reason to be there other than jobs. And um, we agreed that we would we would look to move and we would figure out what that looked like. But uh, we were very intentional about moving to Chicago and trying to you know create something there. And that was the next step for us. Excellent. So when you took that step to the, the smaller agency, was that a step back? salary wise and, and everything uh it was a step up in salary but i okay. definitely it was definitely a step back in stature if you will i mean nobody was uh calling me and uh trying to win yeah yeah no that was the last time i went to the super bowl man i, I got a football right here <laughs> i got a super bowl football right here that i got from a super bowl what is this 44 yeah um yeah no no more super bowls i haven't been since <laughs> But sometimes you have to take either that step back or the step to the side to open up new opportunities. Absolutely. You know, and a lot of people are afraid. Again, that, that, that fear holds them. It's like, man, you know, this is, I know this, I know what's expected here and I'm getting all these perks. I'm just going to ride it out. And that's, yeah. yeah, that's bad. In my head, the thought, the thought process, and I, I was talking to one of my coaching clients yesterday and I said, the thought process was this, you go from big corporation down to a, a smaller firm. And then for me was going into entrepreneurship. And what it allowed me to do was go take the lessons from big corp, you know, take that into small agency world, but I've got the comfort of, you know, still W2, I'm still, you know, getting a check and all those kind of things. But I needed an environment that required me to be more hungry because my goal was always to be an entrepreneur. I just didn't know how to do it or what it was going to look like. I thought I wanted to run my own agency. So going to work for a small agency was very intentional mm -hmm. because I wanted to be with the principals. I wanted to learn from them. How did you launch it? What'd you do? How do you manage it? How do you scale? I wanted to get that experience to make it easier for me to transition. In going through that, I realized this was very similar to the life I just left, but worse in some regard. Because at least at GM, I know GM's, it's a huge corporation. They're always going to be in business to some degree, yeah. right? Unless they just sell or close, whatever. But they're, you know, it's a huge company. With a small agency, I felt the weight of the world almost daily. I felt like every presentation, someone was losing their job if we didn't kill it. Yeah. And that began to wear on me as well. But I also realized that sometimes there's fluff in the corporate world that, you don't get at a small agency and you get even less of that when you step out on your own as an entrepreneur. So if when I left the small agency world to, to go full-time in real estate and be an entrepreneur, I think the biggest thing for me was recognizing that sometimes we can be too polished. You know, we've got too much training and systems and processes and cute stuff. And you just got to hit the ground running and be, you know, an animal and make the phone calls and just, yeah. you just got to do the business, you know, and it's tough because I have been trained 
to think intellectually about situations and what does a consumer look for? And let's do a consumer journey and a roadmap and all these fun, cute things. And at the end of the day, sometimes you just got to call people (laughs) and just pick up the phone and call and ask them if they're interested in the sale. And it's just, you know, I think those experiences, um, it took a minute for me to process, but it's different when, when you're an entrepreneur and you're debating, you know, you don't know where that next check is coming from. It lights a different fire under you than when you you know you got your salary coming in. And yes, you want it to be well, but if it doesn't work, who cares? We'll try again next time. There's no next time when you're an entrepreneur and you got to hit some numbers and you don't know where that check is. Absolutely. But one thing I really appreciate is you saying I, I did this with intention. I You took that job at that agency specifically because you had thoughts of being the entrepreneur, right? So always try to take the jobs where you can learn and set yourself up for the next step. I think that's, that's perfect. Good job. So how many people do you have working for you? Yeah, right now we've got about three people that work for us right now. We're actually, I'm sorry, we have two right now. We're getting ready to add our our third person. So most of them help with our our content development. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've got an editor who's amazing. And then I have an assistant who helps me with uh, really everything from my calendar, as well as, you know, coordinating things with the podcast and different guests. Very cool. And then at uh, GM and the other agencies, you had people reporting to you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. At GM, I had seven agency partners. So I had seven agencies that reported to me. Um, and geez, I had uh, about three or four direct reports um, at the, you know, at General Motors directly. And uh, in the agency world, yeah, I probably had about seven to 10 people. I oversaw the department. So as a group account director, I oversaw you know, the entire Miller Coors account. Uh, we got the Nike business, oversaw that, oversaw the Mountain Dew business. So yeah, had a number of reports and people to manage from that standpoint. Wow. So if I was to bump into any one of those people on the road and ask them about you and your leadership style, what would they tell me? What kind of leader are you? Uh, I, I think they would tell you that I was an empowering leader. Um, I try to give people the space and room to run their projects the way they saw fit. And I try to serve as more of an advisor uh, to help them with that. If there was something I know wasn't, wasn't going to work, I would call it out, but try to give them the ability to grow and learn and run it in the way that they saw fit. Um, one of the challenges that we faced in those roles is you know, we're dealing with creative. So a lot of this stuff is subjective both internally, right? With our creatives who came up with the idea, they're pitching us on the idea. You know, we got to get on board sometimes, you know, someone on my team or we may not like the idea. So there's some sensitivities around that you got to manage, but then you got to get all all on the same page to then go present it to a client, you know, and get them on board. So part of that process for me was trying to help them understand what the client was looking for and then how to coach the feedback so that our creatives could then feel empowered as well and make whatever adjustments because you didn't want it to be, um, you know, an us versus them situation. And that was the way I always try to coach people is like, listen, if you're, you know, if you're running into a situation where they are, you know, really pushing a certain position, I would say first and foremost, respect their view and let them articulate their view but then also make sure that you don't set them up to be embarrassed or disappointed because you knew exactly what the client was looking for and you just let them walk into a room and fall on their face. Make sure that they're prepared with what the client was looking for, or if they disagree, have them be able to articulate, hey, I know you asked for this to be in green. We looked at green and it really conflicted with this and the logo didn't work right. So we tried that. We actually think this color is a much better fit, right? So it's just trying to coach people behind the scenes so that they could be empowered and be the leaders that they were looking to be. Nice. Very cool. So what's next for you? I mean, you've done so much and accomplished so much. What's next? Well, I mean, our whole mission now is to help other families. I I always go back to my time at uh, General Motors and working with those, uh, my colleagues, and how many of those people had to stay there, right? Um, How many people didn't have other investments or, you know, were looking to diversify? And if I would have known that, hey, you know, you can invest in real estate, 
you know, without living or, you know, being the landlord yourself, maybe this is something I would have explored a little bit more. So we work with other families. We want to continue to do that. We want to expand the amount of people we're helping get into real estate through this passive investing strategy. And uh, we're, you know, a lot of creating content and trying to just share that message with more and more people. Uh, So that's the biggest thing we want to do, but it's education. You know, whether you invest with me or someone else, I think the key is just letting you know that this exists. There are people out there who are pulling dollars together to buy these apartment buildings. The next time you drive by a large apartment complex, don't assume it's just some rich family that owns it or some huge corporation. You know, assume it's someone like me and Harlan and maybe a group of other people who've gotten together, put our dollars together and went out and bought it. That's exactly what we do. And it's a great way for you to be involved in that. Get your slice of the pie while still doing whatever it is you love. Very cool. Is there a minimum investment? Usually, yeah. So our typical investment is anywhere between 50K and 100K. Uh, Some deals have a 25K minimum, some have a 50K minimum. It kind of just depends. But, you know, anywhere between 50 and 100 is what we typically see. Very cool. And I'm assuming you have a lot of information available out on your website, right? (laughs) That's right. Uh, If you go to kasmancapital.com, there's a lot of information. We got our podcast there. Uh, we have articles we've written and we also have a sample deal package. So if you kind of want to wrap your head around what it is I'm talking about, download the sample deal package. And that way you can see what a potential offering could look like. It's not a real deal. It's a sample deal. But if you need to start getting familiar with the terms, uh, if you want to start getting familiar with what to look for, um, it's a great way to just start to ground yourself in that. And then I'll send a follow-up email and tell you, hey, here are the things we look for in any opportunity. And you'll start to just kind of get more and more comfortable with the idea. Very cool. And your podcast again is Multifamily Insights. That's right. And that's available on all outlets. Absolutely. Perfect. All right. John, I will have all those links in the show notes so people can get in touch with you and find out more about this. I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out more about this. Cause like I said, I've, I've dabbled in residential real estate, but never in multifamily and I'm interested in learning more. So this has been great. Thanks so much for being. Absolutely. Harlan. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. Listeners, hope you guys are taking notes. A lot of good information here. Definitely go and check out, uh, Casman capital and, uh, Download that information and and see if this is something you may want to get involved in. And if so, reach out to John. He can help you with that. All right. And share this episode with your family, friends, and colleagues. And stick around because there's always more coming. That's it for me. Coach Harlan saying so long for now. 